The May 2021 crisis between Israel and Hamas reminded the world that the differences between the sides are vast. Israel sees itself as having pulled out from Gaza in 2005, including removing all its settlers. Hamas has railed against Israel's very existence as an occupation in itself, though Israel doesn't have a single soldier on the ground. Are Israel and Hamas doomed to face each other every few years in a battle of rockets? What are some of the difficult options ahead? And why have they not been taken until now? And most importantly, what can be done? Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we are exploring a series of policy dilemmas of Israel's history and its present. Tough calls that require courageous leadership and creative thinking. My name is David Murkowski, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project of Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute, and I'm excited to go on this journey with you. Hamas is a major Palestinian Islamist political group that has held control over the Gaza Strip since 2007. It is designated as a terrorist group by the U.S. State Department, by the European Union, and by Israel. After Hamas's success in the Palestinian Legislative Council elections of 2006, tensions sparked conflict between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, known as the PA, located both in the West Bank and Gaza. And ultimately, victorious Hamas established a rival government in Gaza, and the PA was thrown out. With gunfire, a takeover of Gaza by Hamas may be near. Hamas is demanding Fatah give up another security outpost. It's looking to complete its military victory in Gaza, splitting Palestinian territory in two. Islamic extremists controlling the coastal Gaza Strip and Western-backed Fatah ruling the West Bank. Hamas ended Fatah's 40-year domination of Palestinian politics last year. Since then, the coalition between Hamas and Fatah has been crumbling over who controls security forces. Since 2007, the Israel-Gaza relationship has been characterized by mutual distrust and near-continuous low-level conflict. War broke out between Israel and Gaza at the end of 2008, also 2012, and 2014. The latter in 2014 went on for 51 days. However, a March 2019 ceasefire enabled Gaza to stay mostly quiet until May 2021. Ceasefires have been made possible through careful intermediaries like Egypt and the United Nations. After escalating tension around Jerusalem in the spring of 2021, Hamas launched rockets at Israel that May, and it drew the parties into a war. Through violence, Hamas was able to showcase its ideological purity, label itself the defender of Jerusalem, and demonstrate resistance against Israel, all while undermining the credibility of the rival PA. The result was a situation that Israel wanted to avoid. It did not want even limited civilian collateral damage, and it did not want, of course, vocal criticism from abroad. Therefore, it was in Israel's best interest to end the conflict quickly while severely limiting Hamas's capabilities for future attacks. 
that should be added at the Biden administration played a key role in bringing an end to the conflict in 2021. Even before the pandemic and the latest round of violence, Gazans suffered strikingly high poverty and unemployment rates and contended with weak infrastructure. Now the Strip is in desperate need of reconstruction, which much of the international community favors, but at the same time is wary about given Hamas's influence. It knows Hamas remains fully armed, and so long as it remains fully armed, the next round of conflict is not far off. Looking back at the 2019 ceasefire, we can gain insights into how the 2021 ceasefire may play out. Qatar, an oil-rich country, has played a role as a financier of previous arrangements. Before the latest escalation, Qatar provided $30 million a month to Gaza, which Hamas claimed was used to purchase fuel, pay civil servants, and provide humanitarian aid. However, it seems that some of these resources were being diverted to meet Hamas's goals and were not always used for the humanitarian purposes intended. Egypt's security services have played a key role in the ceasefire arrangements, and Egypt, a pillar of the Middle East peace process since its 1979 peace treaty with Israel, has a natural interest in Gaza's stability due to its shared border along the northern Sinai. Egyptian mediators provide vital channels of communication for Hamas and Israel. Egypt has pledged just over 400 million euros. However, international support is complicated by the fact most Western governments list Gaza's Hamas government as a terrorist group. For Israel, the ceasefire is an imperfect strategy as it does not ensure long-term stability. Quiet can also be the best way to cover for rearmament. Moreover, Hamas can divert its focus to Jerusalem. It understands the religious appeal of Jerusalem. It could bring people to the streets on its behalf. All sides admit quiet in Gaza has a benefit. But what are its costs? And what is the balance between both? Are there feasible alternatives if Hamas remains armed? And if structural change is not achieved, are the subsequent rounds of violence between Israel and Hamas inevitable? Are we doomed to repeat these spasms of violence every few years? To discuss this further, we are joined by three people, Nikolai Milanov, Mike Herzog, and Karim Hagag. Nikolai Milanov served as the UN Secretary General's Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process between 2015 and 2020. He also served as Foreign Minister and Defense Minister of Bulgaria. Mike Herzog, a retired Brigadier General of the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, is an international fellow at the Washington Institute. Over the last decade, General Herzog has held senior positions in the Office of Israel's Minister of Defense under four successive administrations. Karim Hagag is a career Egyptian diplomat with over 25 years of service in Egypt's diplomatic corps and is currently serving as a professor of practice at the School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the American University of Cairo. So welcome, Nikolai, Mike, Karim, coming to us from Bulgaria, coming to us from Israel, coming to us from Egypt. And uh, thank you for all joining us as we discuss really 
the fallout of what happened with the Gaza crisis. Uh, we're recording this, you know, a month after the, the Gaza crisis took place. And we're trying to understand from three experts how important is what happened? How much of a game changer is this? Let's start with you, Mike, in terms of Israel. While uh, this is not the first round of armed conflict between Israel and Hamas and other armed groups in Gaza, as we have every few years an eruption, but I think this is uh, somewhat different, in, uh, especially in the political and strategic context. There was a very deep political context uh, pushing Hamas to uh, launch this, to initiate this round and fire rockets at uh, Jerusalem. I think the most notable element, the new element, is the uh, connection they made between Jerusalem and Gaza. Namely, if you, Israel, do certain things in Jerusalem, we will fire at Jerusalem. And this created kind of a precedent. For the first time, they created an actual connection whereby they fire rockets. Uh, the second uh, thing which is different, I think, is uh, their uh, attempt to signal to Israel the potential for the creation of the so-called axis of resistance facing Israel. During this round, we had uh, several uh, firing of rockets from Lebanon to Israel, from Syria to Israel. We had an armed drone, Iranian armed drone, which was uh, intercepted by the IDF. And they are kind of uh, signaling the potential for uh, this axis of resistance. Nikolai, over to you. You know, as you look at this Gaza crisis, I mean, I'm sure it was heartbreaking to everyone. And I think probably for you, maybe more so than most others, given the yeoman work you have done in trying to stop conflict between Israel and Hamas and uh, working with the Egyptians, the Qataris and others in this regard in Israel. How would you, I realize, very preliminary assessment, but... What went wrong here, in your view, and, and how significant it was the May 2021 crisis? Thanks, uh, David, and I fully agree with um, what was said by Mike earlier. It is a game changer for all sides, um, and it does point to a potential nightmare scenario in which Israel is fighting on multiple fronts, um, and whatever escalation you have in Gaza, uh, relates to escalation in Lebanon and Syria um, and other conflict parts of the Middle East. So it is a game changer, which is very dangerous. Um, the previous arrangements that were in place until recently, until a few months before um, the current escalation, were based on three pillars. The first pillar was to reduce security incidents at the Gaza fence. Um, and that was handled um, over time with uh, very intense uh, mediation between all sides. Um, secondly, it was focused on putting together an um, international UN-led system that controls projects that are implemented in Gaza. And through that system, um, Qatar contributed for fuel, other countries contributed for job creation, etc. Um, and the international community was able to undertake these projects that helped the humanitarian situation in Gaza. And the third pillar was the idea that this period of calm would be used for addressing the long-term political and humanitarian issues that face both sides, including the issue with Israeli missing soldiers and civilians. Now, what happened, um, I think, over the past few months that particularly went wrong were two things. 
One was uh, the direct delivery of um, cash to, to, to Hamas, which went on for a number of months. Um, and secondly, were loopholes in uh, uh, what was allowed to go in uh, through the Salahuddin Gate um, on the border with Egypt. Now, we worked very hard to address these uh, challenges on the ground and to make sure that all assistance is folded within the internationally agreed um, framework. Uh, but unfortunately, I think events over the last few months allowed the leadership of Hamas in Gaza to believe um, that they have the wiggle room, the political space with which to escalate. And the last element which really led them to believe that they have that room um, to gain popularity among Palestinians was the fact that Mahmoud Abbas cancelled the Palestinian election. Cancelling the election um, was a terrible uh, blow to the body politic of the Palestinian people, um, and it really opened the floodgates to the escalation which later happened with Hamas firing rockets in Jerusalem. In the future, it will be very difficult to go back to the previous arrangements as they existed, and I don't think that would, uh, that would be advisable. A new system needs to be put in place that ensures uh, much more um, intrusive, if you wish, control of um, international aid in, that goes into Gaza, a much more clear mechanism uh, that brings Egypt, Israel, the US and others to the table in managing and controlling in the flows of international assistance into Gaza so that it, in, so that it doesn't fall into the hands of uh, Hamas or other militant groups. And secondly, that you actually are able to address the political challenges that Palestinians face. So, Kareem, over to you in Cairo. Uh, Egypt was a key player in the ceasefire of 2019 to 2021. What is Cairo's assessment of what went wrong uh, that led to this outbreak? I think the, the most important developments were actually taking place on a number of fronts beyond Gaza itself. And, you know, in addition to the developments on the Jerusalem front with, with the uh, proposed evictions of Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah, you, you also had developments on the intra-Palestinian front with the cancellation of the elections and, and also the perennial competition uh, in Gaza between Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad seeking to claim the mantle of resistance uh, against Israel. A in addition uh, to these factors, you also had the breakout of communal violence in the mixed Arab-Jewish cities within Israel itself. So in other words, all of these developments really enabled Hamas to position itself as claiming the mantle of Palestinian resistance and the defender of Palestinian rights, not just in Jerusalem, but also uh, within uh, the West Bank and also to a certain extent on behalf of uh, Palestinian rights, Arab rights in Israel itself. Now, I think really what that faces us with is a, a very extensive challenge. And that's really prompted Egypt uh, to take a much more expansive approach as to what needs to be done after uh, the ceasefire. And you could see the elements of what we might call uh, Egypt's roadmap for consolidating uh, the ceasefire. First, there is the effort to, to turn uh, the unconditional ceasefire, which is what we have now, into a more uh, robust agreement between Israel and Hamas. Second, uh, there is, of course, the need to put in place a more robust 
international framework to monitor and coordinate the reconstruction efforts, given that there will be a more intense international focus on the need to prevent the diversion of assistance to uh, Hamas's effort to rearm. Now, the issue of Palestinian reconciliation was mentioned, and this, of course, will be a major focus of Egypt's effort. This time around, Egypt is not just talking about another Fatah-Hamas agreement. The thinking now is that this has to be done under the umbrella of a restructured PLO. So the PLO is now emerging as the umbrella organization to bring in Hamas into uh, the fold. And in that framework, hopefully uh, bring in an agreement between both uh, Hamas and Fatah. And finally, of course, there is an absolute need to revive a political horizon for the two-state solution. Yes, of course, today this is very far off and may be unrealistic to envision quick progress on that front. But we need to begin by at least reinforcing the tenets of the two-state solution, reinforming, reinforcing on the part of uh, both the Palestinians and the Israelis the fundamental tenets of a two-state solution that could hopefully provide a springboard in the future for a renewed negotiations effort uh, in the not too distant future. Mike, let me just ask about, you know, someone you come from the military establishment. I think that it's fair to say that the security establishment did favor. Many did a ceasefire. As you said, there were these eruptions every few years. And if you could have a quieter Gaza, the hope was that that would also have an impact elsewhere in other theaters. And I just wonder to what extent is now people going to say, oh, ceasefire equals Hamas rearmament, that they use the quiet in a way to dig these metro tunnels. 90% of their rockets have been locally manufactured. We're not talking about the old days of 2014 when there was stuff smuggled in tunnels, although there might be some residual. But, you know, now with all these underground sensors, a lot of this is homemade. And so to what extent do you think Hamas tried to purchase quiet, uh, believing it could use the time best to rearm, to manufacture rockets, to dig these underground tunnels? Well, what transpired is Hamas did use uh, the years of quiet in order to uh, rearm itself, replenish its arsenal. And as you noted, most of it was uh, indigenous uh, production, both Hamas and Jihad Islami, especially since Egypt effectively closed uh, the border and destroyed the, the tunnels, uh, smuggling tunnels. So uh, it is clear that Hamas found ways to rearm itself. And it is obvious that the whole mechanism that was in charge of uh, reconstruction was supposed to monitor all the materials and make sure that nothing, nothing is diverted for military purpose. That did not work uh, properly. And there were many breaches in that uh, system. Uh, I think Israel uh, is about to go back to uh, the same strategic paradigm of uh, containing uh, Hamas and other factions in Gaza based on deterrence, aspiring to achieve a long-term ceasefire arrangement, which we failed for numerous reasons, but trying to do a much better job in building a mechanism that, on the one hand, 
uh, will ensure reconstruction in Gaza uh, on top of the basic humanitarian needs of the population there, but on the other hand, will uh, will ensure much better uh, monitoring, security inspection inside Gaza, on the borders, and will also make sure that if anything is diverted, um, the flow of materials is stopped. It doesn't continue. I think Israelis will also draw some additional conclusions, for example, on how to recharge Israeli deterrence, which has been eroding over time. It was recharged now in the last round, but uh, deterrence by nature erodes over time. Israeli leaders already said, you know, uh, any rocket will be met by a very harsh response. It is easier said than done once things are quiet, but I assume you will see a harsher Israeli response for provocations, including incendiary balloons and, and rockets here and there. Plus, um, there is a debate in the Israeli system today whether we can adopt elements from the what what we call the campaign between the wars that Israel runs against Iranian armament in Syria to prevent building Syria as a military front facing Israel. There is a debate now in Israel whether we can adopt some of these elements. So if we have information about uh, Hamas efforts to rearm itself, we can also use military means on top of inspection on the ground. Where does it go from here? I mean, I think we would all agree if there was a two-state solution, there would be a chance that Hamas could be under more pressure to make concessions within the Palestinian context. And you would see the West Bank of Gaza um, united in that regard. But there's also the fact that the real story part of it is that in four rounds of fighting since 2008, Nobody has wanted to reoccupy Gaza. Israel has not gone in in four rounds on the ground. There was a moment in 2014 with tunnels, but very narrow and uh, does not, because it's going to be very costly. And it seems that you have very difficult options. I mean, I was struck, Kareem, watching the YouTube of all the Egyptian heavy trucks going in. And I was wondering, maybe is could this be the beginning of an Egyptian trusteeship of Gaza until things stabilize so we don't have these outbursts. And of course, Gaza is very important, Egypt being that it's right perched next to the northern Sinai. So apart from the two-state solution that we all want, I'm trying to think, what are the options? Could some sort of international or Egyptian trusteeship be there until things have stabilized? Could you see, you know, Secretary of State Blinken uh, has made clear that he wants the PA to have a bigger role, the Palestinian Authority, led by Abbas in the West Bank, that is the rival to Hamas in Gaza. Another option, could you have a long-term ceasefire with Gaza? Can this work? And, you know, and the final option is some sort of Palestinian reconciliation government as favored by former Palestinian Prime Minister Salam Fayyad um, that would make the focus inward on Gaza reconstruction. So yes, a two-state solution might be the most effective, but I'm not sure we see it happening uh, immediately. And Kareem, you said yourself it's unrealistic. So this season of the podcast is about tough calls, and there's no ideal solutions. But So what, what should be done with Gaza over time if the two-state solution doesn't materialize very soon? Kareem? So yes, um, these are tough calls. 
what you're seeing on the ground is Egypt in particular uh, moving very fast on a number of fronts. Uh, first of all, you've seen Egypt take a much more proactive position on the issue of Gaza reconstruction and humanitarian relief. Egypt pledged $500 million for Gaza reconstruction and uh, immediately began to move in very large quantities of humanitarian relief uh, into the Gaza Strip, with not even waiting for the uh, modalities of an international uh, mechanism to be in place for uh, the humanitarian and reconstruction efforts in the Strip. You also see this week, Cairo uh, will be hosting uh, meetings of Palestinian factions to begin what will be a difficult conversation on Palestinian reconciliation under the umbrella of a restructured uh, PLO as the framework for whatever political agreements or understandings are reached uh, between Fatah and Hamas uh, that will hopefully eventually provide a roadmap for the return of the PA to the Gaza Strip, that there's no doubt that will be a very uh, difficult undertaking to pursue. But you do sense a certain determination on the part of Egypt uh, to begin putting in place uh, these building blocks. There is no military solution long term for the problem of Hamas and for the problem of Gaza. As was said, the fact that Israel has to periodically restore its deterrence against Hamas means that the military option, by definition, is unable to guarantee long-term stability. So we have to move bit by bit on these elements of what I described of the as the roadmap uh, to hopefully put in place uh, the foundations for a more stable arrangement uh, in Gaza uh, that deals with humanitarian relief, reconstruction, Palestinian reconciliation, and a roadmap back to a revived political horizon for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mike, over, over to you. How do you see a long term? I think we would all agree if there was a stable two-state solution, it could shrink Hamas's appeal within the Palestinian public. But until everyone gets there, this could take time. And I listed all these different options with all these different downsides. What do you think is, of all these options, the most preferable? And what is the most realistic, realizing that the preferable and the realistic might not be the same? From an Israeli point of view, there are several strategies that could be adopted vis-a-vis -vis Gaza but uh, most of them are uh, theoretical and not uh, practical. One strategy would be to replace Hamas uh, with the PA. That would be preferable. However, this is not in the cards. Hamas would not volunteer. And the two parties have been unable to agree on anything. So this is not in the cards. And I think uh, the second option is also more theory than, than practice. That is uh, toppling uh, the Hamas regime in Gaza. That would require that Israel conquer Gaza, stay there for a long time, dismantle terror infrastructure, and then it will be faced with uh, uh, the dilemma of an exit strategy and who to turn it over. And uh, I think Israel, for good reason, has been reluctant to go down that road. So we are left 
with the option of containing Hamas uh, based, uh, containment based on deterrence. In theory, there's also the option of a two-state solution, but that too, unfortunately, is not in the cards right now. I would like to see funding from other sources, not only uh, Qatar or predominantly Qatar, and I would like to see a much more robust uh, security inspection uh, on the ground. I think all of this is possible. However, I do not want to underestimate the challenges. Yeah. And let me point out uh, several challenges. First of all, I think there's a huge challenge of uh, what should be the PA's role. And that is because I think the chances of reconciliation today between the PA and Hamas are much lower than they used to be. Certainly after Abu Mazen cancelled elections, and given the fact that Hamas initiated this uh, round because it wants to seize the mantle of Palestinian leadership at the expense of, uh, of the PA, and actually, actually they marginalized the PA. And beyond that, I think that uh, the PA is still reluctant to play a role uh, on the ground in Gaza, They've not only always been a constructive uh, actor when it comes to Gaza. Let me remind you that uh, the deterioration towards the ultimate eruption started in 2017 when the PA cut funding uh, to Gaza by 25%. That started the uh, escalation. So there's a major uh, dilemma of how to um, involve the PA in this. They should certainly play a role. We should deny Hamas political gain uh, at the expense of the PA, but we should be mindful of uh, the pitfalls. And finally, I think there's uh, still uh, major challenges when it comes to a long-term ceasefire arrangement between Israel and Gaza. Because of the missing Israeli soldiers and, uh, and Israeli hostages, uh, don't, remember, don't forget that there's a new government in Israel and they will need some time to uh, you know, settle in office once they are sworn in. It's not going to be, uh, uh, it's not going to be an easy uh, ride here. I think that, uh, uh, you know, maintaining a ceasefire based on peace for peace will not hold for very long. It is in the interest of the parties to establish some kind of a long-term arrangement, but it is very challenging to do so. So, Nikolai, I give you the last word here, which is just, you know, you've heard all these ideas that are out there, what the international community could do after this conflict to avoid another spasm of violence, keep repeating itself. How do you see it? You, you, you said something about on the issue of on the reconstruction mechanism that, um, you know, that this has to be rethought. But what do you think is the best way to avoid every few years there being an eruption? I think, again, I want to make it harder, not easier by saying if there was a two-state solution, maybe that would work in, in marginalizing Hamas. But if this two-state solution doesn't uh, materialize so quickly, what is the second best option that is not that is realistic in your view? And what is the role of the international community and the Biden administration in making that second choice work? David, the way I see things um, today, if what we're talking about in, in this chat, namely a robust, intrusive mechanism, um, controlling international assistance in Gaza, a, an Egyptian leadership role 
both on reconstruction and the internal Palestinian process and a preservation of negotiations as as the only reasonable way forward for resolving the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, in the absence of these three elements, I'm afraid that I think in within the next months, six months, we're going to head to another serious escalation in Gaza. To avoid that, really what needs to be done is in the coming days, you know, Egypt is taking the lead on the internal Palestinian uh, process. Some very, very hard questions need to be asked among Palestinian leaders. Because the way that the things stand today, um, the Palestinian national movement is facing a very bitter choice. And that choice is to totally dismantle the very idea that you can have a two-state solution um, and consolidate a Gaza entity and an entity in the West Bank led by the Palestinian Authority and the Gaza entity being led by Hamas. Unfortunately, this is a very, very realistic prospect that Palestinian leaders need to admit to themselves and resolve a lot of the differences that they have. Now, one way of doing it is to say that in the interim period that we're facing now, you need to put in place a new new government, a government that is independent, that is um, technically capable, that is politically empowered, to oversee Gaza reconstruction on the Palestinian front that is allowed by Fatah in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza to take on that role. And that government that builds the trust of the, with the international community. Now, if you have such an element in place, perhaps you could work with the international community and ensure that aid is delivered into Gaza and that it doesn't reach Hamas and that it is in coordination with um, uh, with everyone in the region. That is extremely, extremely important. I fear that uh, if uh, the dialogue in Cairo in the coming days collapses in, in, in mutual accusations between the different Palestinian factions about who's responsible for what um, and doesn't come out with a roadmap that leads to the formation of such a government that is able to effectively um, uh, move on assistance within Gaza and manage things in the West Bank, we're going to face very, very hard choices. Because uh, the Palestinian Authority, as was said earlier, has really been pushed into the corner. And this is very, very unfortunate. Because with all of its faults, the institutions that the international community um, has invested in so many years um, in Ramallah to build are really the institutions that um, are one of the elements protecting the idea of a two-state solution. Now, if you take these institutions away, um, if, if these institutions collapse, then really there is no chance to even theoretically uh, talk about a two-state solution in the future. Um, and if you remove the two-state solution as the framework for resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, you're, in, you, you're left with a constant management of security on the ground, be that in Gaza, be that in um, in, in the West Bank, constant escalations um, and, a, and, and a growing risk on all sides. And this includes Israel as well, growing risk of, of radicalization that we're seeing um, e- even as we as, as we speak today. So preserving the two-state solution is important, but making sure that there is a realistic roadmap to how it can be achieved and, and how it can be made understandable to people today is very important. Now, but unless a plan is put forward very quickly, unless it's agreed, um, both internationally and, and domestically, we are going to head to a new um, escalation and it's going to be um, very, very difficult to contain it afterwards. As someone who was the, you know, the UN coordinator, do you think violence is going to be more likely or, or you, you have faith that the international community 
working with the parties will find a way uh, in the absence of any major structural shifts at this time. I'm afraid I don't see um, a credible road to an Egyptian-led trusteeship of Gaza. Um, and I don't think that would really help because the amount of um, investment, security, political effort that it would require would really go against um, the grind of um, what the, 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 the main thrust of uh, the Palestinian political uh, narrative is, and that is the right for self, to self-determination. What may be a, a, a sort of a middle ground in the absence of a government that is able to function both in Gaza and in the West Bank um, is perhaps to make sure that there is a temporary authority within Gaza that is separate from Hamas, that is trusted both by the people inside Gaza, by the internationals, by Ramallah, as an interim management entity to allow uh, for reconstruction uh, to take place and to allow for a slow return to, to, to a semblance of normality uh, for the people of Gaza. But again, that is a very, very difficult task ahead. I don't also see a particular appetite within the UN Security Council to assign anyone, uh, uh, any single party, the trusteeship of Gaza. And that is unlikely to change in the future. So what we have to operate is the reality that we have today. Well, I want to thank you all for your time. I mean, our listeners have heard three of the most thoughtful uh, perspectives that I think there is on this subject coming from uh, Mike Herzog in Israel, coming from Karim Hagag in Cairo, Nikolai Maladnov in Bulgaria who's the UN envoy. I think this is one of those classic tough calls. If there was an easy solution to Gaza, it would have been done a long time ago. Uh, we've seen what is the cost of conflict. And now the question is, is there a pathway to a better future for both of these parties? So I just want to thank you all for joining us on Decision Points and hope you join us again in the future. So we just heard a really intriguing conversation of three people who have been following Gaza from, from very different angles. And I think that in some ways there's a consensus, which was if there was an overall solution for the Israelis and the Palestinians, what we call a final status deal, that could make Hamas less popular. Uh, that's not a given, but it's a possibility. Yet, I don't think anyone that we talked to was optimistic that a grand two-state solution is at hand. So you're dealing with three different entities at this point. And, you know, here too, I don't think there was any magic wand solution on what would be done. I think if there were easy solutions, it would have been done a long time ago. I think that people were intrigued by the fact that Egypt has been more robust after the conflict. You saw the United States, led by Secretary of State Blinken, focusing more on two states and, and the President Abbas putting him at the center. But the question is, is so long as Hamas is there, so long nobody disarms Hamas, you're dealing with very difficult options. So can you imp improve what's known as the Gaza Reconstruction Mechanism, the GRM, to make sure that concrete and the like are not diverted? Can you do other things? Everyone would agree on humanitarian things. No one wants people to live in misery. Uh, that's a given. 
but how do you ensure that these rounds of conflict that have been going on every few years do not just repeat itself in an open-ended way? Gaza is going to remain a very tough call where you're dealing not with always what everyone prefers, but on what is attainable with the goal, again, dignity for all sides and security. This has proven to be elusive uh, until now, and we'll see if it's any different in the future. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you join us for all of season three. Please go to your favorite podcast app to rate, review, and subscribe to Decision Points. And tell your friends. I also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible, our coordinator, Sheridan Cole, and our researcher, Alex Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute. And finally, Richard Myron and Lindsay Riley, our production team at Earshot Strategies. Thank you all.